Presented by DogNation.com, this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. Here's your host, Brandon Adams. I like this time of year. It's the time in which you're getting ready for the NFL draft, and I don't love everything about the NFL draft conversation. I think sometimes there's an attempt to kind of be overly uh, negative about some of the prospects. I think some of the way in which the sort of talking heads on TV try to show themselves to be smart is they sort of nitpick every possible blemish on every possible player. And I always find that to be a little bit illogical because we wouldn't be talking about these guys as potentially very high draft picks if they weren't very good football players. So why do we have to spend so much of the pre-draft process being so negative about them all? I just feel like there's a lot of that when it comes to the NFL pre-draft process. I find a little bit of that to be distasteful. I'm not talking about Georgia players. I'm talking about players across the board. It's like, you know, we we sort of spend more time talking about what's wrong with the players as prospect as opposed to what can be right with them. And I just kind of find that to be a little bit annoying. But there are also those moments as Georgia fans when we hear our guys, the former Georgia players, really kind of propped up and hyped up and praised by the uh, famous draft analysts. And listen, yeah, we're fairly simple around here. We try not to be too complicated. That's just sort of a nice thing to hear. But it's also one of those things, I think, sometimes that can set us up for a fairly important conversation. And I think today is a little bit of an example of that. You know, we have heard a lot as of late about Ladd McConkey and Ladd McConkey being healthy at the Senior Bowl and the attention that got and all the nice things about Ladd McConkey. We did a lot on the show a few days ago about all of that. But what if I told you today it's actually a different former Georgia wide receiver? who's getting some of that discussion and getting some of that attention. A, it's a nice thing to hear, but B, as I said before, it's also probably something that I think gives us a couple of pretty important points that we can make that probably need to be made. So let's give you a chance to hear Mel Kuyper Jr. Kuyper's been around doing this as long as anybody possibly has. Really sort of the guy that started the sort of draft analysis business. And he was on one of those ESPN podcasts with uh, Field Yates, another one of the draft analyst type guys. And they were talking about draft sleepers, specifically the wide receiver position. And the first name that Kuyper wanted to mention was that of the now former Georgia wide receiver, Marcus Rosemey Jackson. And Kuyper had a lot of really good things to say. I want you to hear this Mel Kuyper from ESPN. I like guys with length, catch radius, the guys can go get the ball when you think they're covered, they're really not feeling. Marcus Rosamy Jack Saint from Georgia as a kid. You know, 6'1", about 205 in that area, but the length, the arm length is very important because he gets that edge over those cornerbacks when there's a contested situation. I like guys who have improved. Remember, he came out of San uh, Thomas Aquinas High School in Florida, right? He had that bad ankle injury against Florida back in 2020. 2022, he averages 11.6 a catch. He upgrades that and improves that to 15, 16 yards a catch this past year with four touchdowns. Big playability, the catches he made in traffic. Go back to games against South Carolina, Kentucky, and Tennessee. He was outstanding. He's got to say length, hands, catch radius, the tough catches in traffic across the middle field is what really caught my eye. So there are two things right there that Kuyper says that I think are really, really important. First of all, obviously for a kind of college football-centric show like this, our prime viewpoint and vantage point for the NFL draft is related to what does this do for Georgia and future recruits who could come to UGA? You know, what kind of advertisement does this become for getting other players to want to now come to University of Georgia and travel the same path 
that the draft eligible UGA, the draft eligible UGA players might be in any given year. So when Kuyper says, "Boy, when I look at uh, Marcus Roseby Jack saying I just see improvement," he said the word improvement twice during that clip. Gosh, man, I, I think that's the kind of thing that if you're Georgia, you ought to want to just sort of blast out all over the place. Hey, Mel Kuyper, not a Georgia fan, not an SEC guy, just a draft analyst. Looks a guy like Marcus Rosemey Jackson, who didn't always get a ton of attention playing in the Georgia offense. And what Kuyper says is, I'm seeing improvement. I'm seeing him getting better year over year over year. I don't know that you can get a better compliment for your program than that. And I don't think that you can get, I mean, first of all, the compliment also goes to the player himself. A lot of us have grown to really like Rosemey Jackson over the years. The fact that he was dedicated to his own improvement. But selfishly, we also like the idea that Georgia helped facilitate that improvement. And the other thing that comes up in that clip is the fact that it is proven with productivity in big games, in tough situations. He talked about contested catches, you know, in the likes of the SEC. Once again, that's really all a program can provide for any player. And Mel Kuyper there is saying that uh, Georgia provided that for Marcus Rosemey Jackson. I really, really like that. Now, Kuyper would go on to talk a little bit more about the nature of the improvement and how Rosemey Jackson did keep getting better while he was at UGA. Once again, music to the ears of dog fans, Mel Kuyper once again. This is a guy's going to keep getting better and better. We saw that improvement. I like what I saw going from 2020, 2023, and going up in terms of the average for catch, being a guy who would go into that traffic and make those catches that other guys kind of shy away from. Uh, Marcus Rosemey, Jack Saint did not. And I think the best football is yet to come. And I think when you're 6'1", you're 205, and you have those long arms and that wingspan, that length, I think that's going to be critical against cornerbacks in the National Football League. So I think uh, Marcus Rosemey, Jack Saint, goes to the point in the draft field that uh, I think he's going to be really interesting. If it's early day three, uh, late day two in that area, I like this kid a lot. So let me provide the unspoken context for a lot of this here right now. Many of you are already aware of this. It doesn't need to be said, but I'm going to say it anyway to make sure we're on the same page. All of this kind of comes with the narrative that's out there, and we talked about this the other day, that somehow Georgia's not a good place to be for wide receivers, and yet within the last 48 hours alone. We've seen two different former Georgia wide receivers, albeit one of those guys kind of predating Kirby Smart, Chris Conley and McCole Hardman, have significant performances in the Super Bowl, including Hardman catching the game winner. And we've now got at least two different former Georgia wide receivers who have been among the most buzzed about early guys in terms of the 2024 NFL draft. So a couple of different former Georgia wide receivers starring in the Super Bowl, couple of different former Georgia wide receivers factoring prominently in the pre-NFL draft discussion. So a fair question to ask might be, what exactly is the problem? If, if Georgia's scoring about 40 points per game, which it is now for the last three years, if its guys are starring the Super Bowl, if its guys are coveted draft prospects, what exactly is the issue here? Why is there that kind of lingering narrative, that fertile soil for negative recruiting of, receiver Georgia do you want to go there do you want to be like Georgia wide receivers that's the kind of rhetorical question that gets asked on the recruiting trail but based on just what I just described one could fairly answer I think I do want to be like Georgia receivers I'd like to be like Chris Conley who is a big part of a San Francisco 49er NFC championship team or a McCole Harbin who now has what three Super Bowl rings I think I would like to be like a former Georgia wide receiver I'd like to hear 
what's being said about Marcus Rosemey Jackson being said about me. I'd certainly like to hear what's being said about Ladd McConkey being said about me. Uh, I think I do want to be like a Georgia wide receiver. I think I would like to travel that path. You would presume, you know, many uh, prospects might say, and yet somehow the the narrative against UGA and what it is the wide receiver position sort of lingers here a little bit. Now, exactly why is that? I think it's a question worth answering. And in this discussion where uh, on, on the ESPN podcast the other day where Kuyper says what he says, the other guy on the show, once again, in sort of a complimentary fashion for UGA, but the other guy on the show, Field Yates, who always sort of seems like he's sort of missing part of a name. It should be like Fielding Yates or Fielder. I don't know. Field Yates just seems like it's too short to be a name. But nonetheless, uh, Field Yates, the other guy in the uh, broadcast, while being mostly complimentary of UGA, I think sort of once again touches on why some of this stuff sort of lingers for the dogs at this particular position, despite the fact that Georgia wide receivers are actually – fairly well-received by the NFL. Here's Field Yates on the subject of Marcus Rosemey Jackson and Georgia at the receiver position. Yeah, and Mel, I don't think this was a case in the case of Rosemey Jack Saint of a guy not putting it all together in college because the truth about playing at Georgia is twofold. One, you got to be patient, right? Just a couple of years ago, George Pickens, a second-round wide receiver, and even during the past couple of years, obviously Brock Bowers, the best tight end in the country, one of the best players amongst all pass catchers in the country. Ladd McConkey, obviously a big factor in that offense as well. And don't forget, the top two Georgia running backs this season, Mel, combined for 27 rushing scores. So there wasn't going to be nearly as much passing game production in this offense because so often Georgia was just running the football and beating you with defense, probably contributed to that lower total catch number uh, for Rosemey Jack Saint compared to what you might expect. So interesting statement there by Field Yates that albeit a NFL draft prospect and albeit a guy that Kuyper says could be taken day two of the draft, which is nothing to shake, a stick at still fewer catches than you might think because of all the reasons that uh field Yates sort of gets into that there's less in the way of passing game production you heard him say that but i i actually think that if guys like yates were actually look at the just the cold sort of cold hard stats they might find out well actually there we said this the other day there are only two teams that have scored an average of 40 points per game in each of the last two seasons. One of those is USC. Everybody sort of thinks that about USC. They've got Caleb Williams. They get all the attention. It's Lincoln Riley. Nobody knows more about offensive football, supposedly, than Riley does. But the other team in that category is Georgia. It's not Ryan Day in Ohio State, and it's not Lane Kiffin in Ole Miss, and it's not Steve Sarkeesian in Texas or Kalen DeBoer in Washington. The team that's actually scoring the, mo- the most points on a per-game basis, along with Lincoln Riley, Caleb Williams, USC, is actually Georgia. So overall, the offensive production is actually better for Georgia than perhaps many realize, even if in the midst of that statement, Yates is being mostly positive. So it's great that that Rosemey Jack Saints getting this attention. I just think at, at one level, Georgia fans just like to hear nice things said about their former players. And so when that kind of stuff's out there, we'll probably share that with you. But I do believe there's kind of an important takeaway about well, how do you push the narrative to the next level? If you're Georgia, how do you change some of this conversation? How do you sort of reframe this so that Georgia gets the credit for NFL receivers thriving in the league, NFL draft prospects from Georgia certainly being well-received by the teams that could select them? How do you get more credit for that? And I think this is where it kind of comes down to one simple thing here just for a moment. We've obviously talked a lot about Carson Beck, and we're going to talk more about him. He was the helm 
the quarterback spot for Georgia this past season and what was another very successful year for UGA offensively. The transition from Todd Munkin to Mike Bobo is actually pretty smooth in comparison to Alabama, who can't find an offensive coordinator, in comparison to Ohio State, which has suddenly decided it needs one and kind of sort of fumbled around there, finally landing on Chip Kelly and apparently trying to reinvent themselves completely in the process. By comparison, Georgia's actually been pretty smooth. Uh, that Bobo was on staff here. He stepped in. Bobo had some baggage in the eyes of some fans, but the actual numbers for Georgia this year are pretty close to what they were in, under Todd Munkin the you know years prior to that. So it's kind of gone smooth. But how could it get even better? This is where I think the Carson Beck kind of you know comes in on this. If you look at Beck stats, and I think I've probably said this before, but if you look at Beck stats, he's near the top in America in almost every category, even some ones you might not expect passing yards per game. Carson Beck in 2023 was actually far higher on that list than many of you probably realize. Yards per attempt, which I've sort of always touted as a really important stat for quarterbacks, Beck once again near the top of that list. Georgia quarterbacks for the most part are always near the top in that stat. Uh, Beck no different than the rest when it comes to all that. You could look at a lot of different quarterback stats, and you would see Carson Beck up near the top in America in most of those regards. One stat, though, where he's not quite in that category, and perhaps if you want the perception of the Georgia offense to change, even though the overall results are really stellar, but if you want the perception to change, this might be one of those places where that can happen. Carson Beck this past season was just tied for 24th in America in touchdown passes thrown per game. He only had 24 a year ago, so I think it's really interesting. Passing yards, Beck essentially as good as anybody. Passing touchdowns, Georgia just not quite as many of those. Now, why was that? Well, Field Yates says it's because there are so many rushing touchdowns. We don't necessarily want that to go down for UGA. But if you want to see how another level of achievement on the field could be unlocked for Georgia and perhaps another level of perception uh, and the enhancement of that perception could be obtained by Georgia, maybe more touchdowns thrown by Carson Beck could be the way that happens. So not only Georgia gets the credit it deserves for the offense it's producing, but guys like the next generation of so-called sleeper wide receivers for UGA, maybe they're not quite as slept on anymore because a lot of folks are seeing the kind of stats they expect to see. Kind of a simple point to an overall larger conversation. When you look around at UGA, you see receivers doing well in the NFL. You see receivers from Georgia who are likely to be you know, pretty high draft picks, and yet a perception lingers that something's wrong with Georgia at that position. If you want to fix the perception and what's broken about that, more touchdown passes from Carson Beck this season, that might be the way to get that done. My name is Brandon Adams, and this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. Happy to have you with us no matter how you get to us today. Uh, we're live first in 15, 945, dognation.com, the Dog Nation app. We're 10 a.m. after that across all video platforms. Just really happy to have you with us. Radio, Athens Sports Radio, 960 The Ref, podcast, wherever you find them, including the world-famous dognation.com. Looking forward to all of that. I'm going to quickly give you one housekeeping note, and we're going to move on to the rest of the show. So next week, we are going to have to be away from the live show a little bit. Now, we're going to still have shows, as we always do, but I do have to step away for a few days next week, not the entirety of the week. We'll be back live again on Friday, and we'll have sort of a normal pre-recorded show on Monday. But I'll tell you, we're going to do something next week that I think is going to be really fun, a little bit of a different type of format for us on Dog Nation Daily, but I think it's going to be a blast. I'm going to bring in the people that you hear regularly on this show, uh, Mike Griffith and Connor Riley and Jeff Sintel. We're going to do kind of a roundtable of sorts, almost like you would have heard on the old Cover 4, which we used to do. 
going to have all four of us in the same discussion. We're going to do that for a large portion of the show's middle of next week, like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, wide-ranging collection of topics, kind of laying the groundwork for 2024 and beyond, both for Georgia, the SEC, and the rest of college football. These guys kind enough to really give their time to me on all of that, and I'm very appreciative. So I think we're going to have a lot of fun next week. I'm uh, you know, chance for me to also step away and spend some time with my family next week, which I'm really excited about. Just to just really, really looking forward to that, and also really looking forward to delivering you some kind of unique shows, unlike what we typically do, as a way of taking advantage of this time of year. We're pre-spring practice. We're looking ahead to what I think is going to be an incredibly fun uh, 2024 season across all of college football. And Mike, Jeff, and Connor going to help us get ready for all of that. I'm really excited about that. Speaking of Connor Riley, he'll join us here in a minute. Uh, as a part of Dog Nation Daily here today, we've got a lot to discuss with Connor. Some of that conversation, I want to foreshadow a little bit here right now as we go around the doghouse. And to do so, I want to go back to talk about a topic that we did address on Friday's show, probably need to do a little bit more with here right now about getting the proper, I think, perspective about what George is adding with Ben Urasek, the tight end, who on Friday announced that he's transferring to Georgia most recently uh, being there in Stanford from Bakersfield, California there originally. Now, when this story broke, like right in the moment, we were lucky to have our colleague Jeff Sintel on the show and had a chance to kind of get from Jeff his sort of immediate reaction to what he thought that Eurosec might be bringing to UGA. So let me let you hear a reminder from Jeff on Friday about why the overall perception of what Ben Urasek is might not quite match the true reality here. Uh, Jeff Sintel on the latest addition to Georgia's 2024 roster. Take a listen. Grad transfer, so obviously uh, the rules will apply. He was in the portal well before the deadline. Uh, he visited Georgia, I believe, the second weekend of January. Um, and a lot of people are going to fixate on the wrong things with Urasek here. Like, Urasek only had 16 catches for Stanford last year. But the previous two seasons, he was a workhorse, like 45 catches, 49 catches. I think the big thing to think about is 6'4", 245 or so. He was a 2020 high school recruit, came out the same year that Carson Beck and Tate Ratledge did, for example. So you got a really physical dude there. So I joked about this on Friday that because he's from California, it's a little bit easy to want to say, Next, Brock Bowers. There he is. That's not a, a fair label to put on anybody, whether it be Oscar Delp, who's currently on the team, or young guys like Lawson Lucky waiting the wings, or you know Jaden Riddell, whoever else. You know, not fair to put the next Brock Bowers label on anybody, and certainly a guy like Urasek, you know, coming in from outside the program, that'd be a very unfair thing to sort of you know, attach to him right away. But I do think the overall point that Jeff is bringing up is an accurate one that. If you sort of think about Urasek as being the tight end, extra offensive tackle attached to the offensive line, being here to block, I mean, obviously any player a part of the Georgia offense is going to be asked to, uh, you know, be physical and 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 not shy away from contact. Urasek's no different there on that. But I think overall, Urasek's profile as a player is that of a playmaker. That. He didn't have a ton of catches this past season. He was injured. Just as simple as why well, Why are the numbers relatively low? He was injured. He wasn't playing a ton because he was hurt. But in the two years prior to that, 2021 and 2022, he essentially played at an all-pack 12 level, which I don't know that you know necessarily means a lot to our audience necessarily, but it's not nothing. I think he was like a pro football focus All-American in 
21, I think, and then like an AP second team, not All-American, All-Conference in 21, and then like an AP second team, All-Conference type guy in 2022. The point is, this guy had some credentials. He had some accolades coming his way at Stanford, and that came because of catching the football. This was a playmaker in the Stanford offense. This is a guy who brings a lot of athleticism. And Jeff Sintel would go on to talk a little bit more about that athleticism that he brings to the table and kind of how he fits into a crowded tight end room for Georgia already where we've seen a lot of Oscar Delph. I think we like what we see. We certainly have optimism about a bright future for guys like Lawson Lucky and Pierce Sperlin and Jaden Riddell and the other tight ends here, uh, uh, Colt Heinrich, the other tight ends here that are going to be a part of this Georgia roster. Jeff Sintel also addressed a little bit of that on Friday. Let's face it, it's it's Oscar Delp, and then it's a bunch of freshmen and sophomores for Georgia at tight end next year. Todd Hartley realized that he had a kind of a void there in terms of, you know, a big masher physical body that can also go catch the ball. He was a baller back in the day. He was his high school classifications basketball player of the year. Now, think about that for a second. Bakersfield, California. And he's going to bring a lot of that mindset along, a lot of that skills now to the SEC. This is a guy, and a lot of people are going to say, oh, he only had 16 catches last year. Um, he had back-to-back seasons of 40-plus catches in the Pac-12. His junior year, he was second-team All-Pac-12. So getting a little bit better player than what his stat line for 2023 screams. Quick small point for me on this. You know, Marcus Roseby Jackson, a moment ago, we were talking about him and what Mel Kuyper said is, hey, listen, this guy who proved it by making contested catches in relatively big games, there is something about actual production on the field that just speaks a lot. And as Jeff said, you're talking about, you know, 40 plus catch seasons back to back years, that's a fairly big deal right there. I and mean, that's a guy that's, that's, produced that's had some production and it's a guy that's being brought to Georgia you would think to do some of the same stuff not at the expense of Oscar Delp they're likely to be on the field together a pretty good bit now could this be at the expense of the slot receiver a little bit I think there's some reason to believe that might be true that that if you're playing two tight ends regularly like Delp and uh, uh you know Urasek assuming that that's what it's going to be then you may see less of the slot receiver and how you figure all that out I guess is all to be determined. But Urasek is here because he has a history of making catches and being asked to do some of that with experience in this Georgia offense. Uh, it seems like that's what this is all about. That doesn't make Lawson Lucky any less of a player, nor does it make Jaden Riddell any less of a player. But experience does matter. Urasek has more of that, even if it's not at the SEC level. And I believe that's why he's being brought here. So an interesting addition. Now, one more point on this we're going to bring on Connor Riley. The next question that comes up, well, what about the scholarships? What does this put Georgia at? Like 90 scholarship players? You can only have 85? At this point in time, I'm essentially waving the white flag. I have no idea. Uh, I feel like we thought Georgia was kind of over the scholarship number a year ago, too. It is a hard cap number. You can only have 85 guys on scholarship. But how you count that, how you you tabulate that, that's sort of Georgia's business internally. And they are not want to reveal uh, most of that, which is obviously their prerogative. So, as far as, well, how do you get under the scholarship number? I have no idea. There's obviously a spring portal opening up. I'm sure we'll see departures from Georgia then. But a lot of the sort of accounting on this has sort of gotten to the point of being somewhat tedious. We just want Georgia to have the best possible players he can get and how it gets them onto the scholarship situation. I guess that's UGA's business because this is not an easy thing to keep track of here right now. But the point is, as we discussed Friday, certainly looks like Georgia's adding itself a pretty good player here with some experience. And experience, I would say, is the sort of unifying theme 
of all of the transfers that Georgia brought in here for this 2024 season. And that's a lot of fun to consider. That's also around the doghouse here on Dog Nation Daily here today. So a lot going on as it relates to uh, UGA football. And before I bring on Connor Riley, let me also give a shout-out to a, a great sponsor here there as well. How about our friends from Mr. Reuter? You know, when you're looking at home, uh, uh, whole home water infiltration, one of the things that Mr. Reuter can be great about, they also take care of you when it comes to drain cleaning, repair, water heaters, and so much more. Mr. Reuter's uh, dedicated to addressing your plumbing needs as quickly as they possibly can. And well, that's true for residential, commercial, everything else in between. Uh, they are working hard to satisfy you all day, every day. You can count on Mr. Reuter for upfront pricing, flexible service options, and, of course, exceptional customer service. And the good news is there's a $29 service fee that's waived for any repair that you have done. So please visit them online, mrreutergeorgia.com. That's mrreutergeorgia.com for a lot more on that. All right, at dognation.com, you can visit online to see the writings of Connor Riley. Always provocative, always plenty to discuss. Today will be no different. Let's welcome him on to Dog Nation Daily right now. Athens and across the SEC or wherever the recruiting trail may lead, here's a DogNation.com insider. All right, good to have Connor Riley here today on Dog Nation Daily. Some thoughts there a moment ago about Ben Urasek. Uh, Connor, do you agree with my assessment on this, that that the overall story for Urasek here is this is a playmaker, not in the category of Brock Bowers and almost certainly you know high first-round pick and a three-time All-American, but someone who has a history of catching the football, albeit at the Pac-12 level, but kind of being brought here as an experienced player for what he can add to the offense, that that's kind of the story of what Eurosec is. Is that the sense that you get about this as well? Well, as Dog Nation's uh, premier Pac-12 expert, this is a guy that can do a lot of different things, offer some versatility. And again, you know, the easy comparison is to, you know, make that Bowers comparison. Uh, That's something that the Georgia tight end room, Todd Hartley, has preached is something that's just not realistic. It's not feasible. Uh, They want Oscar Delp to be the best Oscar Delp. They want Lawson Lucky to be the best Lawson Lucky. And I expect them to want Ben Yurisek to be the best Ben Yurisek. I think you were astute in the point of I think Urasek maybe eats into snaps for either slot receivers or loss and lucky in terms of what he's going to do I still expect Oscar Delp to be Georgia's starting tight end commanding most of the snaps and playing that position in the way that Georgia envisions I think it's important to note that Urasek is not going to arrive on campus until May or really even June uh, because of the way that the Stanford academic calendar works out and the fact that he still wants to graduate with a degree from Stanford which I think most of us would certainly recognize the value in that there so he's got a bit of an uphill climb to come in and make a quote-unquote immediate impact uh i wouldn't be surprised if his numbers are maybe more in line with maybe what we saw from eli wolf back in the 2019 season when he came over uh from tennessee sort of following a similar timeline there but i I think the one thing that you you touched on a little bit as well you look at the transfers that georgia has brought in specifically on the offensive side of the ball Colby Young from Miami only has one year of eligibility. Ben Urasek from Stanford only has one year of eligibility. Uh, Michael Jackson III only has one year of eligibility. These guys are all pretty clearly coming to the University of Georgia for one reason, to, to get this last year. And specifically, I think, with Carson Beck. I think they recognize the value in playing with a quarterback like Beck. And, and so they're hoping that his his sort of 
the, the tide rises all ships there. And I think that's very deliberate by Georgia in going out and especially adding in another talented player in Ben Urasek. Can I tell you a name that I did not guess we'd be hearing on today's show, nor have I considered in quite some time? That is Eli Wolf. What a pull that was from you going back to the 2019 season. If memory serves, Wolf had a big catch in the like third down against Florida to help Georgia win that game. So Wolf, I think, should be fondly remembered. Unfortunately, I guess I'm not, you know, very good at doing that. But boy, you talk about a pull going deep into the annals here to pull out Eli Wolf today, the former Tennessee Vol. This is very impressive, Connor. Look, no one loves just sitting around and naming former Georgia football players. <laughs> so we can go and pull an Eli Wolf when we can and, and find some real statistical measure for it. Uh, you're correct. He did have the big third down catch to ice the win over Florida in 2019. Uh, I think perhaps maybe Jake Fromm's finest game as a Bulldog. So we will certainly take note of that there. All right, real quickly uh, to kind of touch on something you also addressed. I think some people, I would say me included, you kind of like what you think Georgia has it tied in already. I know you wrote about Lost and Lucky within the last couple of days here. What does this mean for, you know, like Delp, who I think still has a really bright future? Lost and Lucky, who we heard all kinds of buzz about around this time a year ago. Even guys like, you know, Jaden Riddell, who was actually, I think people may be surprised to realize how high he ranked on the overall list of, uh, of recruits that Georgia signed up to the class of 2024 or anybody else here. What is the presence of a transfer tied in? mean for the tight ends who are already here? Uh, I believe Todd Hartley is still going to play the best players at this position. He's not going to to show any sort of favoritism when it comes to that. And they're going to put the best guys on the field that give Georgia the best chance to win. I think there's a very real world where that's lost and lucky this year. And we quite frankly, don't hear much from Ben Urasek. Uh, I know Hartley has spoken very highly of what loss and lucky can potentially be for this team. And I think the addition of Urasek in particular, and you can maybe make the same case with Michael Jackson, the third, it's just to give Georgia more bites at the apple. Uh, this is going to be a longer and more difficult college football season than any team has experienced before, Georgia included. You look at their road schedule. I believe they have the most difficult road schedule in the country with the games at Kentucky, Alabama, Texas, and Ole Miss. You add in a college football playoff where, okay, let's say they win the SEC championship this year. You're still playing 16 games over the course of the season. So I think it's just the addition of him. He's a quality player. He's someone that Texas looked at uh, as well and brought him in for a visit. I think it's one of those things as they know this season gets on, they're going to need as many quality depth pieces as you can afford to have. And, and even at a tight end position where, yes, I think Georgia very much likes what it has in Delp, Lucky, Pierce Sperlin, Jaden Riddell, and uh, Colton Heinrich. Uh, the last four of those guys have a career five receptions. Uh, ben Yurisek has 108. Uh, there's value to be had, I think, in having that sort of experience, knowing that, hey, some guys – you know, don't necessarily live up to the potential promise uh, that come over the course of a season, because as I think lucky sort of showed last season, did everything right in the off season, but suffers an ankle injury in August. And that really derailed his season. So, uh, you know, you can do everything right and just injuries or whatever happens can be the case. And so I think that's why they felt the need to go out and add your They saw he was a talented player. They think he's a fit in Georgia system, not just schematically, but culturally as well. And I think Kirby smart recognizes in a modern age 
that if you have the ability to go out and do this, you better do it, given that some of the teams you're going to be facing over the course of the 2024 season. I played some audio at the top of the show today. Mel Kuyper Jr. saying nice things about Marcus Rosemey Jackson. I think Georgia fans like to hear that. That's one of two former Georgia wide receivers getting a lot of praise during the pre-draft process. There are also two former Georgia wide receivers who factored prominently in the Super Bowl on Sunday, including McCole Hardman getting the game-winning you know, catch. So what exactly is the problem for Georgia at wide receiver if guys are all over the Super Bowl, all over the draft? What exactly is the disconnect in terms of supposedly this is a position that Georgia can't produce, and yet these NFL conversations seem to factor and feature a lot of uh, former Georgia wide receivers? What's going on there in your mind, Connor? Yeah, I think there's maybe a little bit of a disconnect in, in terms of the way I think the wide receiver position is viewed. And, and I'll own up to this in the way that I've, I've spoken about this. You and I have, have had a lot of discussions about this. UGA and Brian McClendon do a great job of developing wide receivers. Kirby Smart, uh, for as much as we've made about you know the lack of talent they've brought in, it's hard to argue against them not going out and developing the receivers that they are able to bring in. Michael Hardman is a great example of that. And I think you can even look in particular at his development over this past season. He started the season with the New York Jets. He had one catch in five games for that anemic football team. And he gets traded midseason and you know doesn't have his greatest year. Actually, statistically speaking, had his worst year. Didn't have a touchdown going into that Super Bowl. But because of, I think, the things that he learned at the University of Georgia – uh, was in a position to, at, at the end of the game, they called on him and he stepped up and he made a big play. And he made a big play earlier in the game uh, as well with the 52-yard reception there. I think Marcus Rosemey Jackson is a similar guy, similar to that Chris Conley mold you saw him play. He's going to be able to do everything on a football field to help you win. And, and you know, Chris Conley's in his eighth year at the university or, or in the NFL. And I can tell you, based on the playoff run that he had with the plays that he made, He's going to be there for a ninth season. I don't know who it's going to be with, but you see these guys at, at Georgia, they make winning plays there. They don't have big statistical numbers. They're not going in the first round. And, and so I think that's maybe where there is some disconnect there. You know, uh, uh, our, our boss, BJ, pointed out he was surprised to learn that Chris Conley was still in the NFL at this point in time, much less making big plays in a Super Bowl. So, you know, they do an incredible job, I think, of developing the talent at wide receiver and putting them in positions like you saw Hardman and Conley take advantage of on Sunday. I just think that recruits in particular or, or the national media out there that that spell this notion that Georgia doesn't do a good job with its receivers, they develop them into winning football players like they do throughout the roster. And they just haven't quite developed a true star wide receiver yet. And I think George Pickens injury uh, and you could even include Lad McConkey's injury this past season as well has maybe prevented that from being realized. But I don't think you can look at the wide receiver talent that Georgia has continued to put into the NFL and say that they don't develop guys here. Uh, they do a great job of identifying players and, and getting the most out of them. They just haven't been able, I think, to in a way that say like Ohio State or Alabama used to develop those guys into true stars that are going to be taken at the first round that just casual observers are able, easily able to identify. The point I made a little earlier is Georgia's offensive numbers, when you look at total points scored per game and a lot of the yardage stuff, it actually fares and compares well with almost anybody. But the one thing they don't do, and this has been true for both Beck and for Bennett, they just don't throw as many touchdown passes as these other programs do. And I said, if you want to change the perception like fully and finally for the Georgia offense in 2024, the simplest, most straightforward way to do that is just throw more touchdowns. Now, I don't necessarily want fewer rushing touchdowns, but if you could find a way to add a few more passing touchdowns 
onto a resume that's already pretty robust when it terms of when it comes to offensive production. That might be the real breakthrough there, the fact that the one stat that Georgia seems to lag in, not passing yards, they actually do pretty well on that, but passing touchdowns over a couple of different quarterbacks and a couple of different coordinators, that's just not quite where Georgia has excelled. And if they did excel more at that, that probably changed the perception of all of this. Yeah, B.A. wants his cake and he wants to eat it too. I know you had a birthday yesterday, sure. so you've got cake on the mind. I do. Uh, I think, again, the most – Touchdown passes in a season by a Georgia quarterback under Kirby Smart is still Jake Fromm with 28 in 2018. So, you know, look, Georgia's got a fantastic offensive line uh, that is better than most defensive lines they go against. So you can understand why I, I think in the red zone in particular, they lean on that offensive line to finish drives off. I think uh, your touchdown pass number is a correct one. And I think that's why you maybe hear Kirby Smart and you certainly heard it this past season talk about the importance of explosive plays because we've just seen in Georgia in recent years with this offense, if they're going to generate, you know, explosive plays that lead to touchdowns, odds are they're coming from the passing game. So you're looking to do that more. And the reality is Georgia, I believe, was either first or second this past year in total red zone trips. They're going to, you know, when they get down there, it, 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 when you have advantages like Georgia has on the line of scrimmage, I, I think it's just a little bit easier to rely on those in that red area rather than try and thread the needle where it, there's just less space in that area of the field. I, I think you're 100% correct in the idea of you just need to see more touchdown passes from Carson Beck. I think that's the big thing that is going to maybe elevate him into the Heisman Trophy discussion or not. Uh, you know, we've seen plenty of Georgia quarterbacks win. We haven't seen a Georgia quarterback throw for 30 touchdowns in a season since Aaron Murray did it. Uh, so I think if if you're, if Georgia is able to do that, yeah, the Heisman's going to come. And also the big wide receiver numbers or, or pass catching numbers are going to come as well there. Uh, the reality is, you know, these past couple of years, it, it, Georgia just hasn't thrown it downfield or uh, not not necessarily downfield. I think that's an incorrect statement by me. But when they get, as to your point, into that red area, they've leaned so heavily on the running backs because just they've been able to do that. Uh, I do think that that does maybe lead into the fact that Georgia doesn't use its receivers that much. And you can point to the lack of touchdown receptions, perhaps as to why. I thought you had a good story the other day at dognation.com about the hype that's already building for the Georgia Texas game and the idea that I know ESPN talked about, you know, back versus Ewers. That could be kind of like a Heisman Trophy type showdown. Connor, I believe even if Nick Saban's still coaching in Alabama, this may be a, a tough point to, to, to make uh, and, and a hard, hard case to make, but I believe that Georgia's trip to Texas because, you know, Texas was in the college football playoff. I think there's a chance that's the bigger game for Georgia no matter what, even if Saban's still at Alabama. But given the current landscape of the schedule, there's no doubt Georgia-Texas on paper right now is the biggest regular season game of this year and one of the biggest regular season games that Georgia's played in gosh knows when. I actually have doubt on that. Really? Uh, I I think the Georgia-Alabama game is more important for Georgia to win Okay. rather than Georgia-Texas, because I, I think if Georgia wins that Alabama game, it very clearly just turns into, I think, a Georgia versus Nick Saban narrative. Whereas if they lose that Alabama game, it's well, maybe Georgia does have some issues with the way Alabama does things. Now, I, I understand your line of thinking, and, and it'll certainly, uh, I think, bore itself out over the season. I think you look, to, look at the way Texas has been built 
under Steve Sarkeesian with them. I, I think one of the things that went unnoticed, yes, you talk about the offensive skill players, Quinn Ewers, obviously. They've done a very, very good job of building on the lines of scrimmage. Now, they got to replace a lot of their star defensive linemen, and I'll be interested in seeing how they go about doing that. But you look at this offensive line, it's one of the better ones in the country next season. And so I think going forward into 2024, you know, I think maybe Georgia, Texas could go on to become what maybe Georgia, Alabama had been in the recent years in the SEC. It's a big game. It's got a national championship type feel to it. It could very well be a national championship game in 2024. But I think for the 20 for the next upcoming season with the fact that Alabama is on the schedule and the fact that, yes, you do have to replace Nick Saban. Uh, and it's the first game without him on the sidelines there. I think because of that and the history that Georgia has had with Alabama, I think you have to successfully close that book first before you start writing your next one with Texas. I think it's a fair point. It's an interesting point, too, from the standpoint. You don't want to gift Kalen DeBoer kind of a kickstart to begin his era there as head coach. So I think the point you're making is certainly a fair one. Speaking of Alabama, to finish up our conversation here today, Connor, obviously I love any time that you can, like, you know, kind of go back and forth with the Bama folks. I enjoy doing that. But that doesn't mean it's not like a legitimate discussion either. The Ryan Grubb stuff is not good in my mind. And the fact that the Seattle Times on the record essentially reported they were clearly waiting until the end of that 30-day transfer window to announce that Grubb was going to be the Seahawks offensive coordinator. Uh, Connor, I think this is bad on two fronts. A, Alabama for now is sort of without an OC, although I guess Kalen DeBoer could be that guy himself. But B... I mean, you're essentially lying to your own players, and I do think this is the kind of thing that ought to be used against them. You know, uh, I mean, you better believe that uh, if it was me, I'd be saying, are you really want to go there given how they've you know treated their players throughout all of this? Am I wrong for saying that, that I'd make a big deal about this maybe no matter what, but this actually might be a big deal? No, you know, uh, Centennial High School alum, Mike McDonald, I, I think maybe perhaps played a part in this and recognizes that there can be some negative recruiting implications that come with Alabama from this because I, I we we talked about this as well on the front end uh, with Nick Saban and when he chose to announce his retirement. I, I think that played a significant role in sort of the way that roster took shape and and how things turned out there. And Ryan Grubb's a fantastic play caller. Uh, he is someone that I'm not surprised an NFL team has brought in. I think it makes a lot of sense for him to to stay in the Seattle area and, and, and take that job. I think uh, it, the Seattle Seahawks offensive coordinator is a better job at this point than the Alabama offensive coordinator job. And so it, it's certainly an interesting thing. And as we move forward here, look, Alabama knows they're already fighting an uphill battle when it comes to some of the losses they've had on the roster this year. Now you lose a coach who it's it's been very weird about how Grubb was sort of involved with Alabama because they never formally announced yeah. him as the offensive coordinator. There was no press release. There was no none of that. But he was out on the road recruiting for them. He was making appearances at, at Alabama touchdown clubs. And, and so, you know, the maybe cloak and dagger aspect of this, I believe Grubb was the last coordinator to be hired by an NFL team this season. Uh it's very interesting, and it is there is maybe perhaps something to that where Grubb trying to protect his longtime friend in Kalen DeBoer uh, before heading out. Uh, I certainly think that there is an interesting angle to that, and I'll be interested in seeing if there are any repercussions of that moving forward. I know you know we talked about how big it was for Alabama to land Ryan Williams. 
I think the presence of Ryan Grubb absolutely played a factor in that. And so it's not a coincidence to me that this move all happens not just after National Signing Day, but also after that 30-day transfer portal window closes because that news was announced yeah. at around 11.45 on Friday night. And by 12.01, that portal window had closed shut. So let me ask you two quick follow-ups, then I'll let you go. Do you think there's a chance they always knew that Ryan Grubb wasn't going to be the offensive coordinator and they brought him here strictly for the window dressing of making it seem like a good OC is in place? I mean, obviously, you know, that's a lot of speculation. But if that's the case, they knew – because not announcing him officially, not having him on the website, things like that, certainly makes it seem like they knew there was at least a very good chance he could be going on to the NFL. I think Greg Burns said they always had a contingency plan if he did do that, which is not the kind of thing you would typically have for somebody you just hired. Do you think there's a chance they always knew that Grubb was likely not to be in Tuscaloosa? Because if they went through all this pomp and circumstance for a guy they didn't believe was going to be here – Connor, I think we're talking about a completely different set of circumstances, uh, if that's indeed the situation. I don't think so, because uh, Grubb, I think, very much wanted the Washington head coaching job. He made that clear. And when it was certain that he wasn't going to get that job, uh, it became clear that he was going to go to Alabama. So I do think that there was a point in time where Grubb envisioned himself as being the Alabama offensive coordinator for the 2024 season. Uh, But once I think the NFL cycle opened up, and I think, again, he had a chance to return to Washington, he's not going to have to move his family. Hopefully he hadn't sold his house already. Uh, I I think at that point, you know, Greg Byrne being the athletic director that he is probably moved pretty quickly knowing that there is a chance that he goes back uh, and takes that job again. You know, I I think so much of this is having is being prepared and having a plan. And and so I think the Nick Nick Saban retirement showed the importance of that. And I think this Ryan Grubb move is just the latest example of that. All right. Very quickly, final thing. I want to be as fair as possible. I really want uh, as objective of an answer as we're we're capable of, of coming up with here. Do you think that Kalen DeBoer is off to a bad start as Alabama head coach? They lost Caleb Downs. They don't have an offensive coordinator. On the other hand, they do hold on to Ryan Williams, which is a pretty big, you know, I think recruiting win for kind of a first-time head coach here. Just sort of binary choice. Do you think that Kalen DeBoer is off to a bad start as Alabama head coach? I'm going to give you an unsatisfactory answer. Yes, I think he's off to a bad start. But I think whoever stepped into that role was going to be off to a bad start because of the enormity of Nick Saban's shadow and the fact that I think so many players went to Alabama to play for Nick Saban. Uh, I can't give an honest assessment of how DeBoer would have handled this because, like, to be frank, like, I'm going to give the doomsday scenario. Let's say Alabama had hired Kirby Smart. Like, I don't know how well Kirby Smart would have done with all of that. Probably a little bit better than DeBoer only because of the cachet that he has already in the South. But like Dan Lanning could have come in there and had some of the same issues that DeBoer is having. So, yes, uh, to answer the question, honestly, like it hasn't been, I think, an ideal start for Kalen DeBoer. But I think Alabama knows and probably always knew whoever was stepping in for Nick Saban was going to have a difficult transition. And so I think when you look at DeBoer and where he excels the most on game days, uh, game management, I think that's a big reason why Alabama went out and brought him in, knowing that, he, you know, he's going to be able to get the most out of the talent on this roster in this coming time and hope that you're able to play catch up on recruiting in the back end. Because I think if the results slip first and you brought in a coach who is more recruiting minded in that aspect, I think that's maybe a little bit more worrying long-term. 
Fascinating stuff, Connor. We appreciate your time. It's always interesting around the SEC, and uh, this is no different here, even though we're supposed to be in what's the offseason. It doesn't really feel that way uh, very much, but it's, it's always good stuff, and I know we'll look forward to talking to you again here very soon. Some fun stuff coming up next week, so we appreciate your time, and we'll look forward to doing that with you then. Yep, as always, it was a pleasure. Hope you had a wonderful 45th birthday. <laughs> Thank you, Connor. I appreciate it. Let's take a look around the rest of the league. This is SEC Through. Really good stuff there from Connor Riley. I want to go back really quickly here to a point that also came up about you know Georgia and its offense and the, maybe the need to throw more touchdown passes. It's important to note, I was thinking about this, so you've got a fairly consistent trend of back and then Bennett before that Heisman finalist, but fewer than 30 touchdowns thrown. This was also even true when, like, say, JT Daniels was the quarterback there as well. Think about the biggest game from a production standpoint that Daniels played in. The game against Mississippi State, his first start, he threw for more than 400 yards that day. But Georgia as a team only scored 31 points. That there has been a little bit of a disconnect between the overall offensive production of UGA and touchdowns through the air for this offense. One more kind of example of that, a stat that you've heard me reference in the past. In 2022, the Georgia offense led the country in offensive plays of 20 or more yards, which is sort of my sort of basic description of an explosive play. Georgia defines them differently. I just think simple language, a play of 20 or more yards, that feels explosive to me. Nobody had more of those than Georgia did in uh, 2022. They had 98 plays of 20 or more yards, but they still had fewer than 30 touchdowns thrown. Just an interesting thing here that Georgia's productive offensively, Georgia's even explosive offensively, but that it hasn't always resulted in quarterbacks throwing touchdowns. But if you really want to kind of conquer that final frontier in terms of perception for the Georgia offense, a little bit more action through the air in terms of getting to the end zone might be a way of doing that. We'll see if Carson Beck in his final year is able to do just that. Now, we're getting ready to cruise around the SEC courtesy of Royal Caribbean. And boy, the fun we have on tap for Allure of the Seas coming up in April. I just can't wait for this. I've gotten a message here this week about some of you are going to be on the Dog Nation cruise, and it just thrills me so much. People that we're bringing back again for multiple times. And by the way, if you're a multi-time cruise with us, we may have something special for you here. I'm not supposed to say that, I don't believe, but there could be something going down for you there on that. We like to take care of our folks who do that. But also, I love the folks who are kind of joining us for the very first time and experiencing the best of not just what Dog Nation has to offer, but what Royal Caribbean has to offer there as well. A lot of you know I'm still basking in the glow of my appearance on Icon of the Seas a couple of weeks ago. If you're watching a video, you see the Surfside neighborhood. Surfside is such a fun thing because it's a little bit of an idea of what we talk about a lot, that Royal Caribbean really wants to kind of conquer the family-friendly vacation, want to be the best destination for families on a, uh, a vacation. That's what the Surfside neighborhood, kind of on the back of the ship here, is all about. You see the carousel and you see the splash away bay where the kids can play, which you can't really quite see from this video. There's kind of like a, a, a pool that kind of looks over the uh, outside of the ship and onto the ocean. You can kind of see there, there's all kinds of family friendly eateries uh, around there as well. A lot of complimentary offerings. Uh, just really, really an incredible, incredible experience. So uh, one of the things that makes Icon of the Sea so special and Allure of the Seas has its own version of that, like the Central Park neighborhood, which is another one of those cool neighborhoods you can kind of walk through. It almost feels like you're walking through a big city or something like that. Even though you're on the ship, that's what Allure of the Seas is all about. Jessica Slater, great travel agent. She wants to help you get booked up for your Dog Nation cruise and any other Royal Caribbean cruise you want to take here. A lot of really fun stuff happening. 
in 2024. You got the, uh, the icon of the season sailing right now. Debut of Utopia of the Seas here coming up. A lot of fun stuff. Jessica can tell you all about it, but specifically, it's that Dog Nation cruise in April. Give her a call, 770-718-9147. That's 770-718-9147. You can also email her, jslater at dreamvacations.com. You can check out royaldogs.com as well for more information on our Dog Nation cruise. Okay, as we go cruising around the SEC, let's kind of follow up on what Connor and I were just talking about, about Ryan Grubb and going to back to Seattle to be with the Seahawks and kind of uh, what that means for Alabama. We talked yesterday about that not being a very good look for both Alabama and college football. We blame the Crimson Tide for that. But it's also just kind of a haphazard beginning here for DeBoer, which I don't think you can ignore. Paul Feinbaum even is not ignoring it. He was on with McElroy and Kublik, the radio show out of Birmingham, makes a weekly appearance there. I want to read you a quote as transcribed by Saturday Night South uh, from uh, Feinbaum here, who says, after Kalen DeBoer was hired, most people agreed that the hiring of Ryan Grubb was going to be his best move. Fine Mom goes on to say, while I'm well aware that he's a replacement, uh, I don't like what I've seen. I really don't like that Ryan Gr- Grubb stood up the other day and said, I am the offensive coordinator if that wasn't true. Connor also referenced that a moment ago, speaking to boosters and saying that. He says, I realize it's National Signing Day, but this whole uh, but this whole, this really smells. I, I don't know where the blame lies. I don't mind getting the guy an opportunity, but to me, it's a very bad look for Alabama. So Feinbaum, typically pretty uh, uh, unwilling, perhaps, to uh, say negative things about Alabama, not afraid to say that there. Bad look for DeBoer. And also, in addition to you know the kind of, I think, potentially sort of sleazy element of this, there's also kind of the sloppy element of this, of, you know, get your ship in order. You know, you know tighten up here a little bit if you're killing DeBoer. You're not out there in Seattle anymore. The Pac-12, you sort of can be a little bit of a loose operation Nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. But down here, you got to be more buttoned up. And if something like this happens, people are going to assume you did it on purpose. And if you didn't do it on purpose, if you just sort of had all this happen because you can't quite get it together here, well, perhaps that's even worse. I think Kalen DeBoer rightly taking some criticism, even from unlikely sources. Feinbaum, typically a pretty big Alabama cheerleader, in this case kind of choosing not to be. Uh, how about bad news for Florida here? This is the kind of thing we enjoy laughing at. So Florida recently hired a strength and conditioning coach. His name is Craig Fitzgerald. Don't really know him, don't really care. But he's a replacement for Mark Hockey, who Georgia fans do know uh, pretty well. But the point is, is like a lot of Florida fans thought an upgrade of the strength and conditioning program is something the Gators need. needed. Fitzgerald was sort of you know, warmly welcomed because of that. And now, on the heels of Bill O'Brien becoming Boston College head coach, Fitzgerald, after just being hired by Florida, is on his way to the Northeast to be at Boston College. So if you're connecting all the dots here, yes, you've figured this out. Florida has been raided by Boston College for a staff member that had just hired. Florida. Come on, guys. I mean, we all love the lousy, stinking gator stuff, and we all like making fun of you for your ineptitude. We really enjoy that aspect of this rivalry. But, y'all, there is also an aspect here where, to a certain extent, you've got to hold up the standard of the SEC. And if Boston College is stealing your staff members, then it's already over. You've already lost. And Billy Napier is essentially just a dead man walking. Now, people are going to say, well, he had a long-time relationship with Bill O'Brien. Okay, that's fine. And I realize that's a big part of the coaching industry, typically speaking. But you're supposed to be Florida. And this is Boston College. 
their head coach. The reason why Bill O'Brien has the job is because their head coach left the job to go be a coordinator in the NFL, but still he essentially he essentially waved the white flag and said, I can't take this anymore because it's just Boston College. We got no chance of doing anything. And here we are a few days later. They're stealing Florida strength and conditioning coach. Like, what are y'all doing down there? Get your act together at least a little bit. I don't want you to be good, but I need you to be better than this. If you're Florida, I don't know how you're not just humiliated by all of this. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, UCLA has named a new head coach. Deshaun Foster is that guy. Foster, you'll remember him. Former UCLA running back. Been on staff there for a long time. I am going to do the worst thing a podcast host can do here for a second. I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth. I do believe, genuinely speaking, and generally speaking, that programs should make a little bit more creative hires. If you don't have an awesome, obvious A-list candidate for the job, then roll the dice. Sometimes you find really interesting candidates that way. And that's what Deshaun Foster could be for UCLA. So from that standpoint, totally support the idea of Foster getting the shot to be head coach. He's clearly been well-received by the players. But the flip side of that is, coming at this particular moment, I, I mentioned a moment ago that out in the Pac-12, out west, you can sort of be kind of unserious and kind of sloppy and not very buttoned up. Nobody really seems to notice. Nobody really seems to care. They're just not very serious about college football. Well, UCLA is on its way to the Big Ten, and they just lost their head coach who left one school to go be a coordinator somewhere else. It just makes UCLA seem really, really small. And if they want to do anything about that, you know, making a big response with their next head coach would sort of be that. Now, listen, Deshaun Foster may go on to be Vince Lombardi for all I know. But the timing of this, him getting his shot, is a little bit of a, you know, kind of a roll the dice hire, you know, guy that's been on staff there but not a, not, not an experienced head coach. After you just lost a very experienced head coach who said, this is not for me anymore, I think the timing of this works to make UCLA feel really, really small. And for now – I sort of view UCLA to be the bottom of the Big Ten. Whatever you think of that as being Rutgers, a little bit of Indiana, who else is the bottom? Uh, Minnesota, like, like whatever the bottom of the Big Ten is. I kind of put UCLA near the bottom of this league here right now in this head coaching hire, although I do think that Sean Foster deserves a chance. and I think it's kind of cool that UCLA was willing to be a little bit creative with its hire here. I think it's not likely to work. I think UCLA is likely to be treated like a doormat in the Big Ten here. Perhaps they already know that. And then finally, I saw Eli Manning was asked about Arch Manning. And Eli Manning made it very clear that under no certain terms is Arch Manning considering a transfer uh, from Texas here right now. That Quinn Ewers coming back has no impact. Texas is the place that he wants to be. And I'm not a, I, I certainly expect the Manning family to say all of that, and I, I believe that's probably true. I also wonder, and you've heard me, and I will continue to say this, I think that Quinn Ewers has to play at a certain level to make it clear that Manning is the obvious backup and that this doesn't become interesting before the season ends, especially if Texas loses games and against a much tougher SEC schedule, they're probably going to. Um, but the Manning story for me now is not cut and dry, and the Quinn Ewers story for me now is not cut and dry. I didn't like what I saw from Ewers against Washington. I didn't think that was special. I believe in the SEC, you need a special level of play, a quarterback. And if Ewers can't provide it, you know, the issue of Manning transferring is sort of a nebulous topic. 
I think he could have a chance to be a part of this quarterbacking story at Texas this year if Ewers isn't better than he was at the end of the season. But we shall see. And for now, we'll make that cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. As we wrap up here today, a couple of golden shoes as we do so. And these are birthday themed. Yesterday was my uh, birthday. Uh, we'll throw the first one up on the screen here. Very nice to uh, get this. Uh, Robin, who goes by Barkalot on uh, social media, says, uh, Happy birthday, BA. And he gives the nice graphic. You see, uh, the reasonable facsimile there of Ugga holding up the birthday sign. Happy birthday, BA. The happy birthday, Georgia Balloons. You certainly love that. All of that is uh, really great to see. I appreciate that, Robin. Good stuff. And uh, thank you so much for those birthday wishes. Also, Matt Forshee, who, by the way, I went to high school with. Nice to see Matt weighing in here with a uh, very nice uh, golden shoe message there as well. Says, I think it's appropriate that BA's birthday is also the state of Georgia's birthday. Happy birthday, Dog Nation Daily, and happy birthday, Georgia. Boy, I tell you what, there's no more proud Georgian than me. So to share a birthday with our great state, obviously that's a really good thing. You see the peaches there on the uh, birthday cake. Maybe a little peach-flavored finish longer to go with that. Not a bad idea either. Really very good stuff. Thank you so much, Matt. Uh, we'll give you a golden shoe there as well. Lousy, stinking gators. No better birthday present for me than their continued ineptitude. It's been 1,193 days since they've beaten the Georgia Bulldogs, and that is a number that is going to keep on climbing, especially if they can't keep their strength coach from going to Boston College, then gosh knows how long that losing streak may stretch, but probably a very long time. Either way, good stuff. We'll see you back here tomorrow, Dog Nation Daily.